Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. And we're here again with Dan Glazier, Executive Director and General Counsel of Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. Hi again, Dan. Great to be back. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Tim. You're back with Karen Warren, Associate Director for Outreach and Administration. Hello, Karen. Hello, Eric. And hi, Tim. This is episode number two, where you are talking to us about the mission of legal services. Now we're going to turn to the individual areas where you can help folks. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask Dan, a lot of people might think, well, don't you have a right to an attorney? Doesn't everybody have a right to an attorney? You would think in the richest country in the world where basic human and civil rights are celebrated in the Constitution and are a framework of who we are as a country, that there would indeed be a right to an attorney when that is needed. You know, one of the most valuable things that we as attorneys can do is be a voice for those in need. And so as a framework of who we are as a country and as a constitution, you would think there would be that basic right to have a lawyer. But in the civil arena, that does not exist. It does exist in the criminal law arena, the seminal Supreme Court case of Gideon versus Wainwright back in the 1970s said that if we're going to take away your freedom or your freedom is at risk, that at a minimum in our society, in our constitution, you know, you have the right to representation. And that's good. And yet the public defender's office has dramatic underfunding and staffing problems as well. Right. So the good news is in the criminal arena, you have a right to counsel. The bad news is there aren't enough resources to provide the kind of level, often the level of representation that is so critically needed. But in the civil arena, the thinking was, well, we're not taking away anybody's freedom. So you don't have the right to counsel. The practical effect, you are taking away someone's right to a roof over their head. You are taking away someone's right to health care. You are taking away someone's right to putting food on the table. You are taking away someone's right to their children. You would think that similarly in the civil arena, there would be that right to counsel, but it does not exist. And by extension, when you take away those things, you might be taking away their ability to stay alive because of the cascading effect that we talked about in episode one. Yeah, that's it. You know, one is a loss of freedom in the criminal arena. The other one can be a loss of life. I mean, it's tragic, but the reality is in the domestic violence arena, some of our clients have not survived because of their abuser. If we don't get the critical health care that our clients must have, our clients will not survive. And so the stakes are very, very high, but yet there is not a right to counsel. 
which means that you only get a lawyer if you can, number one, have the resources for it. But if you don't, you do not have a right to go into court with that critical piece of your arsenal. And as a result, things aren't as good. There are statistics, and I know, Eric, you're familiar with those, how folks do when they have a lawyer and when they don't have a lawyer. And it's staggering how much better an individual does in the legal system when they have a lawyer. I wish I had that study handy, but it was in the debt collection area where if you don't have a lawyer, 99% of the folks that go to court will end up signing a consent order to pay or they'll get a default judgment. That's if they do show up. And if you do have an attorney, it's much lower. It's 50% or something like that where there may be defenses that can be asserted in court. You know, how many times have we heard the expression, well, there's a law that says they can't do that. Well, that law is scribbles on a piece of paper until you have someone that can step up and make that law happen. I would say along that same line, that's a challenge that many of our clients face in the housing arena. I know I've talked a lot about eviction defense, but many of our clients, they don't realize the effect of signing a consent judgment. If they're not represented, they go to court and, you know, the landlords typically are represented or the landlord may be acting pro se. But if a landlord is represented by an attorney, the decks are stacked against that person who doesn't understand the legal process, doesn't understand the effect of a consent judgment or doesn't understand the effect of a default judgment. So a lot of times our attorneys are working on behalf of those individuals who've already signed a consent judgment or have had a default judgment entered against them and trying to help them maintain their housing. Because they don't know in landlord-tenant case that if you have some affirmative defenses, those have to be pled and they have to be pled in writing. That's a foreign concept. They don't have formal legal training. And so, Karen, you were just talking about housing, and we want to try to get into the major areas in which legal services helps and explain what exactly it is you help with. And I wanted to start with housing. So when we talk about housing, legal services can help you with what? Specifically, our housing law program represents individuals. We have an emphasis on helping people who are living either in some form of like government subsidized housing. So maybe public housing or people who are participating in the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. Those individuals may be facing possible eviction one for past due rent or there's a notice of lease termination because there's an allegation that the terms of the lease have been violated. We also help people in private landlord-tenant situations in the same circumstances. Maybe they're facing written possession action or sometimes an unlawful detainer action. So we provide representation. We have a number of programs that work on housing law. And even if not eviction, like not making necessary repairs, Correct. Right? such that it's a livable condition. Absolutely. Right? That is also another area with people who are facing really bad inhabitable conditions. One area that our consumer law program, they handle housing cases, a recent case that they handled involved a person who was in one of these contract or deed or lease with the option to purchase situations. Mm-hmm. And Unfortunately, this is a person who had a visual impairment, signed an agreement with a landlord. A landlord says, yeah, if you make these repairs to this house, you know, you can make payments, work towards owning it. Turns out that the house was never inhabitable from the beginning. The client was unable to get a occupancy permit. And landlord said, that's your responsibility. 
you need to make the repairs necessary for it to be habitable. Well, no, our attorneys argue, no, there's no waiver of the implied warranty of habitability. But throughout that whole time, because our client didn't know their rights, they were making rent payments. And with the help of our consumer law attorneys, that person was able to get back monies that they had paid towards something that was not inhabitable. So there's an advantage to having that type of advocacy on your behalf. And that's what we strive to do every day is advocate for our clients in the best way possible. You know, a landlord-tenant relationship is a contract. And a contract, by its very nature, is supposed to be equal, ideally, right? It's a contract. I pay you the rent and you give me a livable, you know, habitable place to live. But the reality is the decks are often stacked against the tenant. The leases themselves are constructed in a way that give enormous power to the property owner, to the landlord. So it's not an even playing field. And that's where representation makes a difference. You know, we often say we even the playing field, you know, so often our clients are in situations where there's an imbalance and us being there. And and it shouldn't necessarily be that way. You know, I often say that one of the most valuable things that I can say as an advocate is, hi, I'm Dan Glazier, and I'm an attorney. Boom. All of a sudden, things will happen for my client that, you know, they could do themselves, but those doors don't open because they don't have that title. They don't have that cachet. And that isn't necessarily right. But luckily, thank God that we are there when we can be to provide that voice and to be there. So another area is health justice, right? Can you kind of explain to folks what that entails and what kind of work you do? So that program really works to address looking at like social determinants of health. So whether or not somebody, a client who's living in a situation that is negatively impacting their health. So say, for instance, you have somebody who's running a place that maybe has lead based paint, but they have a child that then has some kind of developmental delays or problems. They work to address obstacles that our clients may face along that line. So that would be prioritizing, helping that child make sure they have access to health care so they can get a proper health screening, addressing the issue with the living situation where there's lead-based paint. Is that going to be a situation where that person has to move totally differently to a different unit? So I imagine you're dealing with Medicaid a lot too. Correct. We are. And we have a really robust health and welfare program that works and advocates on behalf of clients who may need the benefits of the Medicaid program, whether they be adults or they be senior citizens or they be children, women who are pregnant, who don't have health care coverage. We have programs that address each of those aspects of the Medicaid program. We also have a specialized health care program that's called Connecting Kids to Coverage that works on school-based Medicaid enrollment. And by the way, I want to say for everyone listening, all the different major areas and programs that Dan and Karen are talking about, you have dedicated sections of your website to. Right. So people can get in and read about your housing law work and your health justice initiative and family health program, et cetera. Right. And that's, you know, the essence here is that everything is interconnected. Right. 
that if you are in substandard housing, it's going to affect your health. And so that's the other aspect. There are no isolated problems for the poor. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of a less exciting thing to do than calling an insurance bureaucrat or a, a government bureaucrat trying to get things done where things are all snagged up. Do you have staff that will help people make those calls and navigate their way through these systems of bureaucracy? Absolutely. Our public benefits program expends a large amount of time helping clients who are just trying to access the basic necessities of life, like food, like Dan was talking about earlier, healthcare coverage. That all involves application processes to the state agency that administers those programs. So we have staff that will advocate and work and communicate with state agency personnel to see what's the holdup on this person's application. Why haven't you made a determination whether, you know, Mr. X is eligible for Medicaid? Why isn't this person getting a certain allotment of food stamp benefits when they've submitted documentation or verification that you've requested? So we do have staff that do that. Awesome. Karen, can you tell me about the healthcare marketplace assistance program that you have? Yes, absolutely. That's a a specialized program that helps people access coverage through the Affordable Care Act. So they're out doing outreach during the enrollment period and helping people navigate that application process, see if they're eligible for healthcare coverage under the ACA. And they've done a lot of great work in terms of helping people get enrolled. Again, advocacy is the key. And the nice thing about the program that we have is we're really kind of a one-stop shop that, you know, if you have issues of housing and health care and access to benefits, we can help deal with all of it. Yes. Under one roof. Now, during the pandemic, it's been a virtual roof, but a roof nonetheless. Well, you can deal with all of it if all of our listeners give enough money and time to help out. Resources are always the key. That is for certain. Yeah. Could one of you comment on your legal advocacy for adults with mental illness? That's another program. And and I think what we try to do, as Dan mentioned before, is holistic advocacy at its best. We realize that certain segments of our client population have a specific set of needs. So with that program, it's legal assistance for adults with mental illness. Um, We were fortunate enough to get support from the St. Louis Mental Health Board to help city residents who've been diagnosed with a mental illness, and they may have a myriad of legal issues. And a lot of that is because maybe, you know, they haven't had the access to the necessary mental health services. So some of that is working with partner community organizations that are providing them with case management and support, and they help identify legal problems that adult with mental illness might face, whether it's an eviction lawsuit or whether they've had been a ward and they have a guardian, but they feel like they no longer need that guardian and helping them address that because maybe they have had suitable treatment and they're independent and they're ready to be out on their own. So that program works a lot with that particular segment of our client population that has not had some advocacy on their behalf before. And that program is a great example of holistic advocacy. That program has a lawyer and a social worker on staff. It's all about removing barriers. You know, when you are a low income, low opportunity individual, barriers are there. When you are a low income, low opportunity individual, also facing very meaningful mental health challenges, even greater barriers exist. 
we already have a major societal problem that exists in not addressing and helping people with mental illness on a global scale, how much more difficult and hopeless it must seem for people who are also below the poverty line that are dealing with mental illness. Right, right. I'm also thinking about large numbers of people I know, including myself, are facing family members who are experiencing some form of dementia. Is that part of your program to help deal with that? I would say that it does come up a lot, and sometimes it's more with the senior client population that we serve, and we do get calls from individuals who are are facing that challenge. They've probably been a longtime caregiver for a parent, an elderly parent, or family member. Sometimes it's a husband and wife, and unfortunately, one of them has been diagnosed with dementia, and the other spouse is facing a challenge of how can they move forward and handle that person's affairs. So in a lot of those instances, we will try to help people with guardianship proceedings to help them address that challenge and then also connect them with more community resources, connect them with Alzheimer's Association if that's appropriate, help them look for other supportive resources so they they don't feel alone in that challenge. And we actually, you know, now have, and we've had before as well, but dedicated advocates that just work with Seniors. I was going to ask about like the elder law program. Right. The elder law program. Yes. We have a partnership with uh, the St. Louis Senior Fund. They help us fund having a designated advocate to work with that population. That means everything. And it also helps us to work with the whole network of folks who work with the senior population. And that's why you can hand in hand work with these various other programs social service programs who are trying to help seniors navigate, and we provide the legal assistance to make that happen. You've talked about domestic abuse issues. You have a family law program. Is most of it deal with domestic abuse issues? Yep, that is our primary focus, is helping survivors of domestic violence. And we have a specialized intake process for individuals who are seeking orders of protection. So we have a crisis intervention specialist on staff who handles the intakes for the orders of protection, because we thought that was important because That particular client population is already facing so many challenges. And, you know, we need to make sure that when we communicate with them, it's done in a safe manner. And so that's the emphasis of that program. And sadly, that program presents the highest number of requests that consistently we have the highest number of cases in our family law program. I wish that were different, but I'm glad that we're there. And one of the things during the pandemic are the beginnings of the pandemic is we were wondering, we were not getting calls from domestic violence survivors. Like it's our largest area that people call in about. And the reason was, is these folks were sheltering in place with their abuser and they did not have the physical space to make that phone call. Even though more domestic abuse was happening. Exactly. Because we also know during the pandemic, all the problems our folks faced were on steroids. Mental illness got worse for everybody. So we tried to figure out creative ways to reach this population. We used Facebook Live to present community education and all kinds of uh, different ways. But we did notice once the sheltering in place restrictions were lifted, we started getting more calls again from these survivors who are in such a dangerous situation. We want to make sure, again, that we help our clients and their families, because so often kids are involved, that we help them 
move on from this trauma. And we have happily, you know, many success stories of families who we help navigate through this horrific circumstance of domestic violence and move on. And sometimes we've connected them with our, for example, micro enterprise program where they can, you know, start businesses or uh, our educational program where they can get educational opportunities for themselves and the kids to move forward. So that's all part of our holistic approach to making our families thrive. What kind of work do you guys do with the homeless population, Dan? We are well connected with all the various providers and social service agencies that provide those services for that population. We advocate for the homeless to get access to housing, Section 8, public housing. We help them do that. We help them to hook up with the other programs that can provide people with the opportunity to get access to resources that will help them move out of homelessness. We have, and we have a history of the modern shelter system in the city of St. Louis that has existed since 1985. We actually brought a lawsuit on behalf of the homeless individuals in the city of St. Louis. And our cause of action was there was an 1848 statute that said the city of St. Louis had an obligation to support and maintain the poor. What was the source of that 1848 law? Poor houses. All right. That 1848 law, we used that law to make the argument that the poor houses of the 1840s were the shelters of today. And we used that law to bring a case, Graham versus Shamel, on behalf of the homeless in the city of St. Louis to create sufficient resources and shelter for that population. It helps set up a whole network of homeless services. But, you know, we haven't solved homelessness. It still exists greatly. Sounds uh, like it, the city's been violating a statute for the last 174 years. Well, <laughs> the laws are there and uh, yeah, they need to be effectuated. To what extent is there a homeless population in St. Louis? Do you have any idea, any metric on that at the current time? I don't. I don't have a specific metric, but I can tell you that there is a significant issue with homelessness, not only in the city of St. Louis, but St. Louis County. That's why we work so hard to be a part of what's called like the continuum of care. We're involved in that. It's a collaborative group of different organizations that work to address the needs of the unhoused in the metropolitan area. So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have specific numbers. You know, on any given night, there can be as many as 1,500 people living unprotected. And it's complicated because some of them, because of their own mental illness, you know, don't feel safe anywhere. So it's a complicated issue. But at the end of the day, what do they need? They need advocates. They need legal advocates. They need social service advocates. They need community advocates. 
to care that in, again, the richest country in the world, the fact that people live without housing should not be happening. Do you guys deal with consumer law issues like deceptive business practices? Do you have a program about that? Yeah, we do. We have a consumer law program that works a lot on behalf of individuals who are facing different types of challenges. Primarily, I know a lot of the work that they're doing now has to do with used car sales. People who go to like those buy here, pay here type dealerships, and they maybe purchased a car that either one is just really not functional. They were sold a car that's not good, or they may be sold a car the seller didn't have proper title. That's been a challenge for some of our clients as well. So they work to address those kind of issues. They also work on payday loan issues, issues regarding repossessions of vehicles. We have an attorney that specializes in student loan law. That's part of our consumer law program. So he does some advocacy there. Abusive debt collectors. Correct. The debt buyer collection companies are a massive problem in this country. Yep. My brother handles class actions against them, and they've been going on for 10 years. And they just get away with whatever they want. And you know who are some of the greatest victims of those circumstances? The elderly. Yeah. Anytime there is this power imbalance, you can scare people. And you can scare people in thinking that they have to do things that they don't necessarily have to do under the law. And seniors who are just trying to navigate, you know, get these phone calls about debt. And it's just intimidating. There's something that we worked on for a long period of time. We helped folks address zombie debt. Do you know what zombie debt is? No. Dead debt. Debt that because of a statute of limitations is no longer there. Debt because it really wasn't an actually an actionable debt or never even existed. And these folks get these phone calls and people start paying on the debt. Where does the name zombie debt come from? Debt that was dead. It didn't exist. But if they get you to start making payments on it, you have resurrected it from the dead. And so we have spent a lot of time over the years taking on zombie debt. And oftentimes they don't have the underlying document. The debt they bought for pennies on the dollar, they don't have the underlying documents to show there was actually a debt. That's right. And then they file collection lawsuits and they don't follow the law. Right. And the people don't have a lawyer and they start paying the debt and they have a judgment they agree to against. Right. Once again, leveling the playing field. If we're there or if a good advocate is there, that doesn't happen. I know that's such a problem because my brother handles those cases in Illinois where it's bad debt and they file a lawsuit without the underlying documentation and he turns around and files a counterclass action against him, which can't be removed to federal court. And these debt buyers don't know what they're like. You can't do this. Like, Yeah, I can. You're used to just taking advantage of people who don't have a lawyer. Now you're going to pay for all of it. Right, right. And again, as we talked about previously, when you bring these cases A lot of times folks won't defend them because, first of all, they don't understand it. Second of all, to defend against such a thing, they have to go to court. And to go to court, they have to have transportation. They have to be able to take time off from work. They have to have child care. And consequently, it doesn't happen. And one of the dealing with a system that they find perpetually unfair to them. So what's the point of trying to fight something when nothing ever goes your way? And one of the real challenges is, you know, these debt collectors can bring these cases and they just keep continuing them and making people 
go back to court until they can't. There has been some progress made in that regard. Uh, a number of years ago, the attorney general helped make some rules that say that people have to appear in their first appearance and their trial appearance, but not necessarily in between. But that doesn't always happen. And that is a built-in way that folks without means are behind the eight ball and can't get their rights effectuated. Karen, could you talk about your efforts regarding immigration law? Yeah, absolutely. We have a what I would describe a small but mighty immigration law program that does excellent work in helping individuals who have maybe been here in the United States as lawful permanent residents who want to petition and become U.S. citizens. So they help them through that process. They also offer assistance to individuals who've been victims of human trafficking and helping them apply for special visas that allow them to be present in the country and help them get on and with their lives and stabilize. So they do great work. And they coordinate a lot, too, with other local pro bono immigration law firms to provide services. Our last area is one that surprised me when I first saw it, but it definitely fits within the holistic view. Neighborhood vacancy. Karen, did you want to say a few things about that? Yeah. uh, Neighborhood Vacancy Initiative is a really great program that helps address the issue of vacant or abandoned properties. We started that program with the primary emphasis on the city of St. Louis, which had a number of vacant properties. And the goal really is to help empower neighborhoods where vacancy is an issue. And the vacancy may be a result of maybe a home being in a family for generations, but that family didn't have the means to hire an attorney to do estate planning. So there's a lack of clarity about who is the actual owner after the original owner passed away. Or some of the properties in neighborhoods have been purchased by out-of-state realtors or owners, and they've just neglected to do what they said they were going to do in terms of development. So that team of attorneys works to help those neighborhood associations use legal tools to reclaim those properties so that the neighborhood associations have a chance to become owners of the properties. Or if it's an individual property, they help with just basic estate planning, like creating beneficiary deeds so that there is clear title. So they've done a lot of that work. And now we're happy that it's growing and we're beginning to do the same kind of work in St. Louis County. You know, bad neighborhoods, neighborhoods with vacant properties, dilapidated structures, That's where it all begins. You know, if your neighborhood is not creating an environment where you can thrive, that's another way the strikes are against you from the beginning. And so this really attacks, you know, so many of the things that our clients face because it all starts with where you live and how do we treat and respect those areas. And so The opportunity to make homes habitable, the opportunity to turn vacant, dangerous lots into a playground or into habitable homes, this is all where it begins. And so we're very, very excited and proud to be part of this program. And again, it's about partnership, working with these neighborhood associations. You know, the law when done right, can do wonderful things, right? Well, Dan and Karen, I can't tell you what a pleasure it has been to have you on, and we welcome you back any other time you want to come. Before we wrap up, Dan, do you want to give your pitch and speak to the people listening about 
kind of, you know, how they can help in different ways and how rewarding that can be for them. There is nothing more rewarding than to be able to help others to have their opportunities. I consider myself an extremely lucky person knowing that every single day that I'm doing this work and I've been doing it for over 40 years, that there's an opportunity to make a difference. And everyone in the community can make that difference. Difference of time, if you're a lawyer or if you're a social worker, or there are other ways you can volunteer for us, helping us with marketing, helping us with making contacts, resources. So there are all kinds of volunteer opportunities, but providing the resources that are so critical to do the work that we need to do is immeasurable. And all you need to do is go to our website and you will find these many, many opportunities. The satisfaction you get in making this difference, it really is priceless. We've been talking with Dan Glazier, Executive Director and General Counsel for the Legal Services of Eastern Missouri, and Karen Warren, Associate Director for Outreach and Administration. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and enthusiasm for your mission. Thank you so much for having us. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with anyone that you think would appreciate this episode also. Signing off, this is Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.